for any kind of major social change to happen, we're going to need different underpinning laws and norms. We don't necessarily uh, expect everybody to have exactly the same experience of, of what love is or what pain is. If, if we can't work towards agreement about what we're going to treat as true, um, then our, our potential to act and build on that is, yeah, is really important. Welcome to the second episode of The Listener. Have you ever wondered how we have different ideas about huge concepts like love, money and religion? Have you ever considered how misinformation can alter our individual perceptions of the world around us? We spoke to Dr. Amelia Peterson about intersubjective reality, psychology and philosophy. Amelia is an educator and social scientist with an interest in both quantitative and qualitative research. Throughout her work, she's looked at policy, political science, psychology, sociology, and more. I'm Lucia. I'm Eleanor, and you are the listener. Hello, good morning, Amelia. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, and Eleanor, how are you? I'm very well, thank you too. Looking forward to this. Good, amazing, fabulous. So we're going to speak to you a little bit about um, intersubjective reality. And for those who don't know, don't worry, you will probably figure it out soon. Um, and also try and bring in some interdisciplinary links as well. Um, we can manage that. So yeah, let's get started. Um, could you define, or can you define subjective, objective and intersubjective reality? And maybe uh, explain the differences between them? Yeah, sure. This seems like a good place to start. So we can think about objective reality um, as sort of all of the aspects of the world that we have agreement on. So I like to think about this in relation to kind of the history of science. So if we think about a lot of early science being about kind of really naming and categorizing things, and then a long phase of sort of measuring things. And what a lot of that was doing was just kind of pinning down, okay, all of these, you know, different types of animals, different types of rocks, different kinds of things that we were observing in the world, giving them shared names. And now like no one really goes around questioning what we call kind of species, um, what we call the parts of the world around us. Uh, although interestingly, you know, obviously across, across cultures and across languages, there's still kind of differences. Um, but we have sort of agreement of, you know, when we're referring to the same thing, um, we, we had agreement as to what that is. On the other hand, there's aspects of our experience which we would describe as subjective. And that kind of indicates that we don't expect others to agree with us about exactly what that experience is. So it's an indication when we call something subjective that we're, we don't expect others to necessarily completely recognize or completely agree on, on kind of what that was or, or what it felt like. Um, and then there's this layer in between, which can be described as the intersubjective, which, uh, one way of thinking about it is, well, it's sort of the things where there's, there's partial agreement, but there's not kind of full agreement. And so things like, you know, pain, love, wealth, war, often these are abstract concepts that we're kind of using to describe something which, um, is, is part of shared experience. So everybody has sort of, some idea or cares somewhat about the way that we think about what those things are. Um, but they're also part of subjective experience. And so we don't necessarily uh, expect everybody to have exactly the same experience of, of what love is or what pain is. Um, and there's kind of ranges there which are constantly being, being contested. 
Um, from some of the research we were doing, we came across like religion and money as big examples of intersubjective realities. Um, could you kind of discuss some of the real world manifestations of how these intersubjective realities can play out? Yeah, sure. So, so both of those are great examples of um, parts of the kind of social world that also serve this coordinating role. So like historically, religions have been something that have brought people together, um, obviously also something that has torn people apart. Um, but they're things that kind of create collectives. They create collective narratives, collective understandings um, about what we're doing here, about what the world is like, about what good is. Um, and so that's one way we can think of the parts of the intersubjective is that there are things that help us to kind of coordinate collective behavior and to live together. Um, likewise, money uh, in a different way is this sort of, uh, this kind of imagined part of reality. Um, but on the other hand, a part that is a lot of people might think of as kind of very real because it's so underpinned by, or its use is so underpinned by laws. And that's another important part of the intersubjective is that sometimes, um, and in some kind of areas, it's very much underpinned by kind of legal arrangements. And then there's this interesting question of kind of, well, how much are those also just part of an intersubjective reality? And actually, when one comes down to it, that's just agreements between people as to what things mean, how we should understand laws, how we should enforce and interpret them. Um, and so so all of that we can think of as kind of different manifestations of intersubjective reality. Amazing. That's so interesting. And this is a question to both of you now. Um like personally, what do you think is the most powerful or dangerous intersubjective like reality? Really interesting question. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think the aspect of it which is um, ha ha the most kind of risky is to an extent. The more we think about it, the more risk there is that um, that we deconstruct it um, and and that we kind of undermine its role. Now, this can have great power because obviously for any kind of major social change to happen, we're going to need different underpinning laws and norms. So we need to deconstruct a lot of the current kind of values, beliefs that we have and create new ones. On the other hand, if these are the things that allow us to coordinate as collectives and get things done as a society, then working out, okay, well, what kinds of deconstruction are going to help us create better worlds and what kinds are just going to um, lead to unworkable kinds of societies um, is, is very difficult and obviously itself something that people could argue about for a long time. Mm, I think for me um, what I find quite terrifying is like the way that misinformation cycles could play into this and like um, echo chambers sort of creating these crazy divisions within people's minds which is actually the next question I'm about to ask you. Um, do you think that echo chambers and misinformation cycles kind of exasperate the separation between the individual intersubjective realities and ultimately like our individual kind of conception of truth within the world? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think this is where it's really important that we have this concept of the intersubjective so that we have something that sits in between, okay, kind of full agreement about what's real in inverted commas and kind of subjective experience or opinion. We want to be able to say, actually, there are these things that we're, that we're striving to have agreement or consensus on, and that actually um, actions which kind of 
threaten that by by spreading by kind of actively trying to spread misinformation, loosen that link between um, between yeah the shared reality and the kind of individual reality. Um, and I think in order to get things done together, we should instead be trying to strengthen that link. Always, you know, we should be trying to communicate more, to understand each other more, for more of each other's subjective realities to kind of become shared and become something that we can really, you know, discuss and understand and empathize with each other about. And so misinformation, I think, is something that really kind of undermines that because if we're not even, um, if, if we can't work towards agreement about what we're going to treat as true, um, then our, our potential to act and build on that is, yeah, is really weakened. Yeah, so we've been we've been learning in visual methods about visuality and thinking about systems of visual representations. So for instance, we're talking about culturally coded color systems. So for instance, the color of psychology, traffic light systems, etc., things like that. Um, but I think it also makes you think about how different people perceive and experience the world differently. So for example, like Specifically, when we're talking about color, we have people who are colorblind who genuinely experience the world differently. So somebody could see a shade of red and everybody else would say it's green. So like maybe what's another example, do you think, of um, perception shaping reality? Like how important is that? Yeah, and I find all of the study of this visually so fascinating because it's not the, you know, my background is much more in language and kind of thinking about these things in terms of shared concepts, but there's so, so many ways it's relevant in terms of our kind of shared understanding of the visual world. I think another major aspect is our understanding of time. Um, because time is something that obviously we all experience, but we can experience it in quite different ways. So we are to an extent all in time together but we're all having a very individual experience of it. And so then there's fascinating studies across cultures about how, you know, even just the way we might think about time as something that we sort of move through versus something that comes towards us or something that we might move up and down in versus moving kind of forward and backwards in. Um, that is so fundamental to the way that we understand the world and also understand our own kind of agency in the world. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting to think about what kind of different assumptions get built on top of different views of time that's really interesting and it's making me think as well like in ecology we've been talking a lot about indigenous experiences and indigenous knowledge so like the space that we exist in in this specific culture tells us certain things we hear certain things about time about like how the world works these sort of object not even i mean those are the intersubjective things but even objective truths as well so it makes me think how, like, what what role are we missing when we don't include indigenous um, indigenous ideas? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think there's a huge role for um, kind of indigenous ways of thinking to the extent that they can be clumped together. But I think one major commonality is just that uh, very different attitude to to time in terms of you know, really feeling more more connected to, more aware of, more informed about. A longer span of history um and so i think that is something that in terms of adjusting our sense of our position now in the world kind of appreciating that much longer span of history and therefore also thinking about a much longer span of the future that we want to be able to kind of um, you know, preserve sustain regrow the world for 
uh, yeah, is a major thing that we can try to try to learn from those ways of thinking. Um, in some of the reading I was doing before, I came across the author of Sapiens, um, who makes like really interesting points about kind of the collective empowerment that um, intersubjective realities have. And he kind of went as far as to say that Homo sapiens are like the only species that can cooperate both flexibly and on a large scale. Um, and I think this was even backed up by an anthropologist who did some research and found that I think 150 people is the like peak for this sort of cooperation. Um, I was wondering whether you agree with this statement or have any thoughts. No, I mean, it's a bad thing. So this is um, Dunbar's number of like 150, which is the sort of seen as the, yeah, the kind of the size at which a human community can um, can coordinate effectively and kind of communicate effectively. Um, obviously, now in the age of, of information technology and um, the way in which our communication capacities are kind of amplified by the technology we have in our hands, yeah, I think there's really interesting questions as to how much that still holds. Um, when we take ourselves out of kind of physical space, as in when our forms of communication aren't limited by who are we interacting with physically, um, but are, yeah, amplified by, by kind of digital tools. I think, yeah, there's potentially very different sizes of community that can be sustained together. On the other hand, I think just our, our kind of information processing capacity might be a key limiting factor that means that actually, you know, we, we shouldn't expect to be able to kind of really work together and fully understand really large communities. And that's why we do need things, you know, whether it's legal systems, whether it's religions, things that help us to kind of regulate and coordinate our behavior across societies when those societies aren't going to feel like one big community. Um, so I think we, we do need these different sorts of layers of parts of intersubjective reality, which help us, help us communicate and coordinate both in those kind of smaller groups, kind of community sized groups versus like as whole societies and, and potentially you know, as a whole kind of globe. Um, and sort of on community, I'm wondering, like, for both of you, what what is a community where you like most feel at home, where you feel like accepted and part of? Yeah, that's a fascinating question, and I, I mean, I guess it. Um, I'm just reflecting back because we just had a faculty seminar from one of my colleagues, Isaiah, who was presenting about the idea of belonging. Um, it's the subject of his research as an anthropologist, and and so really thinking about like what does what belonging means. Um, and I, you know, I think a lot of it does come down to having, having those kind of shared understandings, having some ways of communicating. And that's why you know, language is so, um, so interesting, so important in terms of understanding how does sort of signals and interpretation really work and how can we reduce the extent to which things are misinterpreted or misunderstood, uh, kind of across boundaries. Um, because I think that's a huge source of what can, can tear communities apart is often it's as much about people um kind of misinterpreting things or not having a way to communicate their experience and, and make it into shared experience and sometimes that's just because we don't have the language for important parts of experience that have been um often for kind of political reasons more suppressed and so part i think of the kind of um development of stronger communities is uh, creating and surfacing more and more language for more and more people to name what their experience is. I think what you said about language is really interesting. And it was making me think of like two different times in my life where like 
language trapped me out of a place and then brought me into a place. Um, I remember being sent on a French exchange when I was like 11 to Lycée and speaking absolutely no French and being completely like trapped out of it. And like, it was the craziest feeling of the complete opposite of community because you just, yeah, it's like nothing without language. And then a couple of years later working in uh, Spain as an au pair um, and finally like grasping the language and then being able to communicate with a whole community and like tapping into a whole different like world of people and culture. So it was like so insane to have those two kind of polar opposite experiences, like only a couple of years apart, but it just really like drums home the importance of language and like especially just learning other people's language. Absolutely. And I think it's often those moments of contrast where we become really aware of the intersubjective as well, in the sense of like when you you know, this even sometimes happens if you refer to kind of a, a book or a TV show or even like an advert you might have seen as a child in another country and somebody else recognizes it. And you've got that moment of like, oh, like, yeah, we we had this shared reality, even if we were in very different places. Um, and yeah, I think it's often those moments that can kind of help us recognize what's what's there in that middle layer. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's also interesting, especially when we're talking about the environment, this sort of like ethno-linguistic idea of like fundamentally your relationship with the environment is to do with how you think about it and how you speak about it as well so like the kinds of relationships you're able to foster with a place if you treat it like with respect or you treat it as as a living organism and not just like a place to um sort of dump things or you know um ruin absolutely yeah no language completely reflects our our values um, and it and it focuses our attention and so the way that we're using it and what kind of language we're creating can be a really powerful way to to shift attention around those. What do you, what is the most sort of exciting or interesting interdisciplinary idea to do with intersubjective realities? Do you think? So I think there's so much potential um, in this field for bringing some of the insights out of sociology and also political science about kind of the role of institutions and what creates and sustains institutions um, and taking those into other fields which are often focusing on um, you know, problems that perhaps aren't always at the forefront of, of things like sociology or political science so particularly kind of ecological questions so um, the understanding of institutions that has been developed particularly in sociology is they can be supported both by kind of norms and values and by laws, but also by this idea of isomorphism, which is, um, refers to the way that in sort of, if in situations of uncertainty where we kind of don't really know what to do, we tend to just mimic or copy what others are doing. And so you'll see this all around the world. You know, why is it that most schools sort of have the same kind of structure, the same kind of format to their day? Like, is that because that's actually the optimal way for learning to happen? It's well, no, not really. It's because sort of looking around, like that's what grants legitimacy to a school. It's like you have a timetable and you have a building and there are classrooms and there are whiteboards at the front or blackboards or smartboards or whatever era you happen to be in. And so that idea of isomorphism, and it's sometimes referred to as amesis, is, is I think a really important one for understanding actually a lot of the things that we do are more about us trying to kind of look legitimate in the eyes of others and kind of look like we know what we're doing when actually we're working amidst total uncertainty it's very unclear what the goals really are 
um, you know, what the future is going to hold. And I think if we can recognize that and think about how do you, um, how do you evolve past isomorphism as in how do you, uh, actually help organizations or, or institutions to be more purposeful in, in what they're trying to do so that they're not just, well, we'll do this because everybody else does this. Um, but we'll do this because we're trying to work towards certain purposes. Um, that's a kind of, yeah, a really important way. I think that insights from, from sociology in particular can kind of be used in other fields. Mm-hmm. And okay. Another question for both of you. Um, what is like, what's a habit or like a hack in your life that you wish more people knew about because you feel like it would help them out, would optimize their, their lives? I am a big fan, some of you know, of Zotero or Zotero or whatever you call it, which is just like a reference management software. And I'm a big fan of its plugin, which you can put on any browser and then just like save stuff from the internet, but you can kind of save whole articles and you can save proper references. And yeah, for me, I think it has trained me into always trying to kind of chase down a train of um, thought, you know, if I read an interesting blog or something, and then going to try and find, well, what was the piece of research they were actually talking about and like save that version of it. Um, and yeah, I think that just gets one into the habit of kind of looking as much as possible for the original research. This is like how I learn languages. Um, I normally like create like a, a Spotify playlist of songs and using the new Spotify update, you can like read the lyrics of the songs as you are listening to it. So it's just a really fun and easy way to learn a language like um, I'm trying to learn French at the moment Um, and you can it's pretty easy literally five minutes just like read the lyrics look look up a couple of words and like that's you done (laughs) that's such a good idea does that rely though on there being like great you know pop music coming out of the country (laughs) so yeah I'm trying to learn German and I wonder what the yeah hmm. it's it's quite a lot of music without that many words in Germany so (laughs) I think also the French music is so like they sing so much about love that like my vocab is so limited um, and it's not particularly helpful. So I probably do need to go to a French lesson at some point. And so the last question I'm going to ask, because we're studying sustainability at the moment this term, is how can we harness this idea of intersubjective realities to help create the mind shifts that we need for sustainability? And so I think this idea is really core to thinking about what a mind shift is that it's not just something that happens on an individual level, but it's something that happens on a collective level. And so if we want to create mind shifts at the collective level, it helps us to really think about and analyze like what are these parts of intersubjective reality? How do they get created and and how do they get changed? And so kind of looking at maybe examples from history where ideas or concepts have really come to the fore that and, and become accepted um, I think is a great way to be thinking about like, what does it take for a, for a new way of thinking to really enter sort of societal discourse, not just individual. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, for anyone that's been listening that would really like to learn more about intersubjective realities, do you have uh, anywhere, any books or videos or anything you could point them towards to learn a little more about? So, well, you mentioned um, Sapiens and Yuval Noah Harari, I think has been a great kind of popularizer of, of some of why this is important. Um, if people want to go back a little bit more into the kind of philosophy of social science, which is where a lot of this stuff comes from, um, there's a book called Nuts and Bolts of the Social Sciences, which is quite good at just sort of 
naming the parts of the social world um, that disciplines like sociology and political science are kind of trying to get at. Um, so that could be one place to start for those who want to kind of get more into the theory side of this. Amazing. Thank you both so much. Um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. <laughs>